Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for September 2022, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Mark Clegg about his book, Oh Say Can You Hear? A Cultural Biography of the Star-Spangled Banner. Most of us here in the U.S. learned the tale in elementary school during the War of 1812, Francis Scott Key witnessed the day-long bombardment of Fort McHenry in Baltimore by British Navy ships, seeing the stars and stripes still flying proudly at first light. He was inspired to pen his famous lyric, but what most of us don't know is the story of how this everyday broadside ballad, one of thousands of such topical songs that captured the events and emotions of early American life, rose to become the nation's one and only anthem, and today's magnet for controversy. In Ose Can You Hear, Mark Clegg, who is a professor of musicology at the University of Michigan, brilliantly weaves together the stories of the song and the nation it represents, examining the origins of both text and music and the song's use in sports at times of war and for political protest, he argues that the anthem's meaning reflects and is reflected by the nation's quest to become a more perfect union. This is a fascinating story of our national anthem and an examination of its powerful meaning today. I began my interview with Mark Clegg by asking him if he was surprised at some of the things he discovered about the Star-Spangled Banner when he was doing research for his book. I was. I mean, this book has been a labor of love. It's uh, I've worked on it for over a decade. It started with my teaching. So I've been actually talking about the Star-Spangled Banner for like 20 years, starting with Jimi Hendrix and Woodstock for my students. And of course, I teach on American music. And like, what's more American music than the Star-Spangled Banner? Like, And then the Hendrix version, I mean, just artistically, it's so profound and so amazing. I mean, the way he pulls together patriotism and protest and this kind of unified statement and really, you know, so I wanted to get my students to start talking about music in you know, deeper, interesting ways, getting beyond the surface. And I think Hendrix is one of those people because it's a complicated song and it's a complicated performance and, you know, in some ways seems like so clear on the top. But when you dig into it, um, you learn more and more about Hendrix and like how long he was obsessed with the anthem and his own identity as an American. And so, you know, I wrote like a 70 page article on just Hendrix on the Star Spangled Banner. That's like a preview of this book. And, you know, now it's down to just part of a chapter on all these amazing performances like Feliciano and Houston and Aretha. And, um, but, you know, part of it was exploring my own like relationship to the country and the song. I mean, I was I was nine years old in 1976 for the bicentennial. And I think like hanging out on my Swin bicycle with its red, white and blue streamers, you know, always, you know, sort of made me fall hook, line and sinker for American ideals. And the Star Spangled Banner for me is a kind of living document. I mean, the way artists bring it to life and sort of almost reflect. I mean, this is what Hendrix does. I think he, he reflects what's going on in the country at any given moment by how he plays it. Right. Yeah. And so really for me, the story of the Star Spangled Banner is the story of America itself. It's like a whole American history because you have a, a tune that was written in 1773. You have a song that was written in 1814. And then you have, you know, like what what happened with, you know, Lady Gaga at the inauguration, like, you know, just a couple years ago. So it's like there, it's always sort of alive and present for me in, in a way that I think musicians, they bring their magic to it. And that's what really makes the song meaningful. 
We'll talk much more about the book, but but give us a little more background about your how long you've been at the University of Michigan teaching music. Are, are you from Michigan? Did you go to school here or study here? I actually yourself? did. I was born in Ann Arbor. I went to wow. Pioneer High School. Um, you know, Clegg School in Ann Arbor is named after my grandfather. So we go way back in the city of Ann Arbor. Um, he moved here actually 100 years ago in 1922. He ran a grocery store out on Packard, which is now the Argus Farm Stop. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of like deep roots here in Ann Arbor. And so I um, you know, went to the University of Michigan. I was a music major, an art history major. I went away and did my PhD at the University of Chicago and then had uh, started having kids and came back to be near grandparents and then got lucky enough to get a position at the university in my hometown. And so there's a handful of us who have that that sort of amazing trajectory because usually in academia the last thing you get to choose is geography like where you live right you just try to get a job at all and uh, <laughs> so i'm like one of those really lucky people to to be in a great university you know near my my, my mom still lives in town my sister's nearby you know so it's it's a uh, it's an amazing thing i feel really 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 lucky forgive my ignorance but I always assumed that Francis Scott Key wrote wrote not just the lyrics, but wrote the music for the Star Spangled Banner. I, and I was like, oh, he 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 wrote, yeah, the words, but not not the music. And that was like a, a popular melody around. There's just so much fascinating right. no, information about this. I, I wasn't even again, excuse my ignorance. I, I knew this was related to a war that was going on. And I'm mm -hmm. like the Civil War, Revolutionary War. No, War of 1812. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this it turns out that writing new words to old tunes is like a thing in early America to comment on contemporary events and comment on political situations, you know, anything from Fourth of July songs to presidential campaign songs, even personal songs at, at times. There, there's, you know, club songs all written using new words and old melodies. And so this was really typical. And when you think about it, I mean, the 19th century was a time when if you wanted music, you basically had to make it yourself, right? Like we don't have recording yet. We don't have radio and iPods and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And so people sang a lot, you know, so it was a pretty typical thing to do. The other thing that I think is important is um, the way in which song conveys emotion, right? So we talk about art as, as, and music as really bringing emotion to the fore, but it, think about the days in, in newspaper journalism when like every town had a newspaper, but you didn't have photography yet. You didn't have video. You didn't have the, all those things today that like puts you in the action, right? We we can see a YouTube video or a TikTok video. Like we're there when when news happens, right? In the in the 19th century, you weren't there. Like the best you could do is to get like a, an actual artist to draw a picture of what had happened, and that took time. So it wasn't immediate. So I think what Song did by writing topical lyrics about contemporary events and setting those to pre-existing melodies that everybody knew and everybody could sing, you could get the idea of the emotion of the news, the import, like the, the, the emotional significance of what's happening. If you wanted to know who won the Battle of Baltimore in the War of 1812, which is what inspired Francis Scott Key to write the Star Spangled Banner in September of 1814, you could find out who won by just looking at the newspaper or asking somebody, right? But if you wanted to know what it felt like to be there, if you wanted to know the anxiety, the worry that that you would experience watching these bombs like fall in a hailstorm for 25 hours over at Fort McHenry, you want to know about the bombs bursting in air and the rocket's red glare. And, you know, the, those high notes of that melody that are so hard to sing are the 
the notes that are used for those critical sort of crisis words, the bombs and rockets in the Key's lyric. And that was intentional. Like he picked the high notes, the, the, the point of crisis in the music to talk about the point of crisis in the news and the event that he had witnessed. Right. And so so I think what what song did is it gave you that feeling of being there um, to the news, which which. So this was hugely common. Like a, if you picked up a copy of the newspaper, you would find lyrics to well-known tunes or poetry about the day's events because it talked about the emotion, the meaning of the of of the news, not just what happened. Huh. So w- what is the melody you you named this that that he set these words to for the Star Spangled Banner? This was a, a popular tune back in 1814, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So this is a tune called um, To Anacreon in Heaven or the Anacreontic Song, sort of a mouthful. It's yeah. a reference to the poet Anacreon, who is a Greek poet. And so oh. this was the name of a gentleman's club in London, England that was formed in 1766, um, where they basically made music. Um, so it was an Amateur musicians, society, skilled singers. So one of the things like that always gets said is like the Star Spangled Banner is too hard to sing, right? So it was written as a show-off song for a musician's club, right? It's supposed to be hard to sing. It's supposed to be like our club song is harder than your club song. So we're better musicians than you guys are. You should <laughs> join our club, right? So it's it's intentionally hard. It's meant for a solo singer. It's not meant for a hundred and you know eleven thousand people at the big house. So it's a it's a different kind of vibe. Um, and and in the 19th century, you would have had a solo singer would have sung the whole lyric, and then the crowd, the audience, actually would have echoed back the last two lines. So you would, would have had a skilled singer who was, you had the endurance to hit all those high notes on the rockets or glare, but the crowd would actually hit the same high note on the word free, right? So, oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave the land of the free and the home of the brave? Um, that would be echoed back, sung first by the soloist and then echoed back by the crowd. So it actually took longer to sing the star spangled banner in the 19th century than today. Interesting. Was this immensely popular from from the start? How does something from 1814 still get sung? Like, I mean, everyone knows this. It's sung at every sporting event. This didn't happen overnight, did it? No, that's a really, really good point. I mean, so... It was pretty popular pretty quickly. So these broadside ballads, in a sense, are the kind of tweets of 1814, right? So you would publish a lyric in one paper, in this case, in in Baltimore Patriot, and then Uh like all the neighboring towns like Annapolis and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, they would pick up the same thing and then reprint it from paper to paper. And so it sort of went viral, if you will, from town to town. From newspaper to newspaper. Newspaper Uh to newspaper. And in that sense, the Star Spangled Banner was one of the most successful of these kinds of lyrics. And it's it's partially because, I mean, like you said, the War of 1812, what is all that about, right? So we know about the revolution. We know about the Civil War in American history. The War of 1812, at least in my history class, was not a big deal. Right. Because it's not that important of a war because everything goes after the war. Everything goes back to the way it was before. All the the boundaries like we invaded Canada and Britain invaded and burned Washington, D.C. to the ground, you know, or the federal buildings anyway. And uh, but after it all, like everybody said, okay, time out. Everything goes back to the way it was. So it's it doesn't change a lot of things. So that's why we don't talk about in history class. Mm -hmm. The thing that the War of 1812 did create, however, was patriotism. Um, was this sense that we're really a country, not a set of states, right? And so because Britain was able to walk all over us and burn the, the Capitol and the White House to the ground, um, this was pretty embarrassing. And so 
Key's song sort of calls for unity, calls for a strong country, which is not what he was living in, right? He this is a this is a dream of what the future might be, and and you know after World War II and the atomic bomb and you know the United States becoming a world power, like we fulfilled that dream, but in 1814 this is not reality. This is this is something he's hoping to have happen. He's hoping to unify the country. He's hoping to create a strong federal federal government, but that's not what's happening in in 1814. But you know Uncle Sam. Sam is a creation of the War of 1812. Oh. This, the lyric that he writes, the Star Spangled Banner, which originally he titles the defense of Fort McHenry, um, you know, gives the name to our flag. Like we didn't talk about the Star Spangled Banner until Key coined that phrase in this lyric, right? And in the War of 1812, one of the, the sort of surprising things is like the flag was different. It had 15 stars and 15 stripes. And it was after that, after the War of 1812, when the the flag becomes more important that Congress passes a law that they'll, the, the stars will always match the number of states and this, there'll be 13 stripes for the 13 original colonies. But in, in the War of 1812, there actually were 15 stars, but 18 states. And nobody really cared because this, the flag was not that big a deal. The flag was something that the military used, that the Navy used, because you had to know who was which ship was the American ship and which ship was the British ship. But look, we didn't have flags in every every schoolroom like we do today. That was actually a product of the U.S. Civil War that, that put flags in all the schoolrooms. It was Civil War veterans who, who made that happen. But the flag became sacred because of the Civil War, patriotism sort of unified the country, starting with the War of 1812 going forward. So Uncle Sam, the flag, and the song are all sort of born at the same moment. And was the Star Spangled Banner uh, very popular through, through the Civil War? Was it, was it, did it grow in popularity during the Civil War? Yeah, so the, the Star Spangled Banner is popular from the time of from the, the time it started in 1814. But it, it really is the Civil War that makes it into the sacred anthem we experience today. Like in 1814, this was a party tune. This was like, hey, we beat the British. This is exciting. It's sort of upbeat. It has a rolling triple time feel. Would have been sung faster than today. Um, with the Civil really? War, the flag, because it, we don't take any stars off the flag when the this, this Confederacy secedes, right? So the, the flag becomes the sacred symbol of union and key song becomes the oral musical equivalent of the flag and so both the flag and the song are made sacred by the civil war and it's really that i think that makes it the national anthem like the 1931 bill that makes it official is just is like a johnny come lately thing like that that's making okay. you know legal what was already true in social practice because it's the civil war that makes the song important um so it's it's hugely important from the the civil war forward and then when, when this tradition of having it be sung at sporting events, when, when did that start? How far ago did that begin? So that that begins with World War II. Um, and actually, one of the things that surprised me, in addition to all these other lyrics that are written to the same tune, um, was the fact that the I thought it was Pearl Harbor, you know, that suddenly galvanizes the country into joining World War II that would have been the spark that made the Every Game Anthem happen. But actually, it's it's the summer before. So before Pearl Harbor in the summer of 1941, um, every single f- baseball game is starting with the Star Spangled Banner. And I think it's it's a response to the anxiety in the country. Like, we're worried we're going to get sucked into World War II. We don't want to be. And the, the, the song gives us a sense of, okay, no matter what happens, we're going to be safe. It sort of prepares the country in a few sense to mobilize for war. I mean, the, the song has always been a part of war in terms of galvanizing the volunteers that are necessary for a volunteer army. 
which is what, you know, the United States has as its ideal. So, you know, we've had that militia ideal. And so um, this, like in the Civil War, the Star Spangled Banner, the song is the rallying cry that sort of galvanizes people to face a crisis together. Well, let's jump forward uh, from World War II a couple of decades uh, to 1968 and the World Series. And this, as a baseball fan, there was no more magical year in baseball in my life than 1968 when the Tigers seemed seemed destined to win the World Series. And during one of those games came a version of the national anthem that was unlike any other version that that. I'd ever heard most people had, had ever heard and and apparently almost cost my my radio here biggest radio hero of all time Ernie Harwell his job because he chose this man amongst a few other folks to sing the national anthem I want to hear all about this. We're talking about Jose Feliciano, of course, right, Mark? No, absolutely. Yeah, this was a revolutionary version of the anthem that I think opens up really the possibilities for every other pop singer, you know, coming from you. We wouldn't have had Beyonce. We wouldn't have had Whitney Houston without having Jose Feliciano. So in 1968, it's game five of the World Series. The Tigers are actually down. Uh, Marvin Gaye has sung it the night before, gave a pretty straight version of it. Um, and you're right, Ernie Harwell, who's sort of a songwriter himself and yes. was in, like hip to the music industry, is puts his ears to the ground and says, "We got to bring in this this guy, this Puerto Rican singer." Um, who was Jose very Feliciano. popular. He was he very done, popular at the time. He had, he had done, done a cover of Light My Fire yeah, by the, the Doors. Doors. Classic, yeah. And, you know, if you know that cover, like what he did with the Star Spangled Banner is like zero surprise, right? Yes, you know, yes, the same too. a really yeah. sort of soulful, you know, version of the Star Spangled Banner that, that Feliciano thinks of as a sincere statement of patriotism, of his love of his country, right? And of wanting to update the anthem for American young people and say, this is a song, like we're in the height of the civil rights movement, right? It's 1968, you know, Martin Luther King has been, you know, assassinated. It's a time of real tension, the Vietnam War, right? He's saying like, patriotism doesn't mean anything to my fans. And I'm going to change, you know, create a version of the anthem that speaks to my fans, that speaks to me, that's sincere to me. And, uh, and he does that. And people freak out right you know, he's the first to sing it in a different time signature in in four four time which you know this is sort of inside baseball in a sense with musicians right but if if you add an extra beat to every measure you take a three four song which is the original and uh turn it into a four four song and it it stretches things out it gives the singer more time to sort of breathe into the vowels you know um whitney houston version is also in four four but it makes it more into a pop song. It makes it more into a sacred hymn, um, which I think is what Whitney really gets right. You know, with yeah. with Jose, it's really a, a, it's like a Motown tune. It's like a, a you know a soul tune, and uh, he brings a, you know a, a kind of just beauty and and sort of lusciousness to that. That's really gorgeous, and a lot of people loved it. I mean, Feliciano, you know, later sort of wondered, you know, when he became lost all of the sort of radio play and the prominence he had had in 1968, 69. He thought, well, did I messed up by doing this Star Spangled Banner? And I got sort of, you know, blackballed. But um, I think at the time, I mean, RCA released it as a single. Yes. And there was sheet music for it. He opened every one of his concerts following the Tigers game with the Star Spangled Banner in exactly the same version. Like this was huge and it, and it propelled his career. It didn't get in his way, at least initially. The other thing, which I think is sort of amazing is, of course, as you point out, the Tigers went on to win that 
that series. And yes. uh, Feliciano has only sung the anthem like in the baseball playoffs. He's he's personally a huge baseball fan, Feliciano. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he was really excited to be there and like freehand and the other like the the players from the Detroit Tigers were like loved meeting him because he was so excited about baseball and and um, anyway like. Yeah, I think he did f- sang it for San Francisco. I think he sang it for the Marlins. Like everybody he's sung it for in the playoffs has gone on to win the series. So mm. I think I think if you want to, if you're a baseball team out there and you're in the playoffs, you should definitely get Jose to come sing. Wow! I, I heard him. It wasn't at, at the Tiger Stadium in '68 uh, when when he sang it out there in person, but 50 years later they did a celebration of the in, in 2018, the 50th anniversary of that '68 team, and they brought out Jose Feliciano to sing the national anthem that night. It was fun tingling it was just such a beautiful you know close the circle moment it was it was really really sweet what what are some of the other uh versions that you have found com- particularly compelling since jose feliciano's you mentioned whitney houston's what about aretha franklin's yeah. that she's saying how long did that go for talking about <laughs> stretching out the the song wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love the, all the sort of personal versions. And I think that's what Feliciano opens up is the possibility for, for singers to make the song their own in a really sincere way. And like Whitney Houston definitely does that at the Super Bowl in 1991, um, Super Bowl 25. Aretha, you know, actually created a version of the anthem that was, or well, it wasn't really a different version. It was her performance at the Democratic Convention in 68 was sort of the first one to become controversial. This is even before Feliciano, but she sang it throughout his career for all sorts of, of events. And I think the version that you're referring to, which I also love is, is for a Detroit Lions Thanksgiving yeah, Day. At Ford Field. She yeah, Ford Field. She accompanies herself on the piano. And so she, she doesn't have to follow anybody, right? Yeah, yeah. So she takes... <laughs> forever i mean she adds all of these like passing tones and melismas and it's it's classic aretha but it's it's so it lasts for like four and a half minutes it, to my knowledge it is the longest vocal version of this one verse of the first verse of the star spangled banner in history like hendrix sometimes stretched it out to like six minutes but he was playing all sorts of other stuff and he wasn't singing so yeah, aretha yeah. is just it just blow mind-blowing um you know so i that is definitely one of my all-time faves uh, Mark, before we let you run, what, what's what's the key to trying to sing Francis Scott Key's lyrics? Everyone complains about this song really being so difficult to vote. It has a uh, you really have to stretch your voice out just to, to, to sing it. Is it any help you can give us novices at the next Tigers game <laughs> or sporting event to try and sing this uh, relatively uh, well? <laughs> What do we need? Yeah, to I think, well, I mean, a deep breath and confidence. I mean, I think <laughs> there is something um, truly American about the kind of heroism and and sort of brashness it takes to to sing the Star Spangled Banner well. I mean, know that you're in a crowd and if everybody's singing, someone's going to hit the high note. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're asked to sing it solo, um, the big key is to start low enough in your voice. So the the range of the Star Spangled Banner is what musicians call a 12th. It's sort of more than an octave and a half. So between the lowest note and the highest note. And uh, so what gets people trouble is that that rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air part, the third phrase, jumps up in tessitura to the high range, right? And right. so you can sing the first two lines pretty comfortably sort of anywhere in your vocal range almost, but you can't hit that those high notes. So you have to start the song sort of a little bit uncomfortably low 
so that when you hit the high notes, you still have have some voice up there. Um, yeah, I'm not a great singer, but but as long as I start low enough, um, you'll be okay. I'm okay, and no one will ever complain if you miss the low notes, right? So so you if you really have to if you don't have quite the range, like go oh can you like leave leave the low notes out and make sure you get the high notes. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for September 2022. Our interview was with Mark Clegg about his book, Oh Say Can You Hear? A Cultural Biography of the Star-Spangled Banner. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Surprise!